Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. I'll be with you for the next six days. Matt Chorley is on a cruise with fellow Times journalists and readers. And no, that's not a joke. We've got a packed show for you this Friday. We'll be talking about how to behave if you're an ex-Prime Minister. Some good advice for Liz Truss and Boris Johnson there. But first, today's Economist panel was James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. The Columnists with Formel. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid on Times Radio. Yes, time to speak to Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Patrick. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Can't overly complain. Can't, can't overly complain. It's very cold, but I mean, things are all right, aren't they? Well, unless you're Rishi Sunak, let's uh, let's do a, uh, a an exquisite segue to your column first this morning, James. Um, Rishi Sunak is having a difficult winter isn't he? Strikes basically every day in the public sector and private sector between now and Christmas. For instance, if you're trying to get anything in the post today, you won't. Uh, sorting offices and and, and, uh, and postmen are on strike. At what point, James, and this is the question your column ponders today, is the public going to lose patience? And, and, and what calculation is Rishi Sunak making? Because Tory prime ministers before, indeed Labour prime ministers before, have been brought low by strikes. It's sometimes taken as a, a sign that you know, the government is in a state of decay. And, you know, it's that James Callaghan quote that you've written before. You know, sometimes when a government has been in power for a while and everything seems to be collapsing around it, it's time for a time for a sea change. Is Rishi Sunak in that sort of place? Or does he think that a, a winter of industrial unrest isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily going to be his undoing? 
Well, Patrick, I think I think your decision to begin with strikes is an attempt to give people another clue in, in your game of guessing. <laughs> oh, James, um, you can't give them a hint that blatant. Anyway, carry on. Um, no, uh, uh, so I think what you see with the government is is very different from uh, the kind of Margaret. Fa- I, I think, as you said in 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 in, um, in uh, Red Box this morning, this is not. We're going to get into a confrontation with the unions. We're going to face them down. The government is trying to just look like the more reasonable party. And I think that's why you see this slight shift in tone, which is, you know, Steve Barkley, the health secretary, keeps saying his door is always open to the nurses, but 19% is unaffordable. Uh, you've got Mark Harper being prepared to meet, in contrast to, to Grant Shapps, and he was transport secretary, Mick Lynch. And I think mean, what the government is trying to, what the government is essentially thinking is that if it appears to be reasonable, um, the public will be inclined to think of the, the to think that the disruption is the fault of the people going on strike, not the fault of government of the government for not sorting it out. Now, I, I think there's a risk here because often what you see with and, and these strikes start with more popular support than strikes tend to have. Mm. Um, and there's also generally in in industrial disputes, there's also always a danger for the government, which is the longer they go on the more the public think, can't you just sort it out? And, and that, 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 that burden falls on, on, on to the government uh, more than, than, than onto, onto those on strike. Um, but I think, I think the government's hope is to kind of win the battle of reasonableness, to basically be, you know, to basically sound like they're saying, look, you know, this isn't affordable at the moment. Um, it would cost £18 billion to everyone in the public sector uh, um, to kind of make them whole after inflation. Uh, and, you know, that, that's the equivalent of 3p on the basic rate of income tax. And so, and so it can't be done. Um, but but, it's, but it's, it's not going to be an easy winter. Melanie, from, you know, Rishi Sunak isn't alone in facing this. Obviously, Europe and Scotland, teachers have been on strike in, in Scotland as well. You know, in these situations, do you think the public start from position, as James said, with with, with lots of sympathy, and if they drag on, uh, the unions risk uh, risk losing their support and sympathy? There's an element of that, but at the moment, I think everybody everybody knows somebody who's a teacher or a nurse or a train driver or an ambulance driver who works in the NHS. Everybody knows. Uh, uh, how tough things are for them and everybody also is under pressure in their own lives and in a, in a world where we're all the, the whole world is desperately short of stuff so we need to be kind to those who turn up and and we we need to remember that people in any organization are their big the people people are the biggest asset of any organization and so it's how it's how those people are treated now that is so critical and and it's why the government are in a bind over this because they have to they have to be they have to be be nice to them but at the same time they have to be reasonable and i think the public i mean i have i have a friend who who worked in acas for many years mm. and she said and that's the um, that's the arbitration service that gets yep. uh, both sides around the table and tries to hammer out a deal isn't it absolutely and and she she she's she's one of these wonderful reasonable people uh, you know un- incredibly unflappable and she says you know you can negotiate anything if you do it with honesty and fairness and logic and i think that it really will be, this is going to be is going to be like walking on eggshells but i think they are the government are going to have to try and do this um I think Labour, if they inherit this position, would have to do the same thing because nobody can pay 19% inflation wages, especially if 
Inflation is going to drop down, hopefully, to 4% by the end of next year. You know, it's, 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 it's just going to take negotiation and talking. I think one of the things that is different is that because at the moment there's such a tight labour market, you know, over a million vacancies, and because um, of all the pay restraint that took place post-2010, I, I think I think public sector workers are in a very different place than they were than they were then. I think in 2010, the idea of you know, essentially trading off um, wage increases for greater job security seemed was a trade that lots of people you know they weren't enthusiastic about, but they were prepared to accept. I mean, the, the challenge now is that, that that people don't feel that way. And I mean, you look at these um, teacher recruitment um, stats and the like, and I mean, I mean that that is part of where the problem comes from. And, and I, th- I think Melanie's point was really interesting there, James, that, you know, ultimately the government can uh, negotiate a settlement is, is never quite as far away as, as, as we think. Um, but when the government look at this generation of union leaders, there's been a b- bit of a generational shift of late. And you write this morning that Rishi Sunak takes this so seriously that he's delegated it to Oliver Dowden, uh, the minister who's one of his key allies and uh, has a sort of uh, strikes unit in the cabinet office. But when Rishi Sunak and Oliver Dowden look at people like Mick Lynch, they look at people like Pat Cullen, who runs the nurses union, um, they are uh, media savvy. uh, They are good at framing their arguments. um, And, you know, in a lot of cases, they are... um, quite ideological people uh, as well who are a million miles away from the Conservatives and indeed lots of uh, ordinary voters on some of these issues. Does the government look at these union leaders and think we can do business with them or, um, as might have been the case or as was indeed the case in the the late 70s, early 80s, um, do they see a group of people who are diametrically opposed and not interested in, in doing business with them? I, I think it is hard to see. I think, I think the trade unions, this is this does not strike me, and, and this is much more your area of expertise than mine, Patrick, but this does not strike me as a, as a hugely pragmatic set of union leaders at the moment. Um, and I think Mick Lynch in particular, you know, the, the, the RMT, you know, they, they have kept up high levels of, of union membership in, in their industry, and they, they use that that power very um very ruthlessly and i think there is a and i think you know i think the government keeps trying to say look you know we kept the trains going during covid that was a huge cost um so you know shouldn't there be some kind of give for that but i, I but i think i, I don't i don't think that is mick lynch's inclination uh, we are yeah yeah, I think I think that's a that's a fair point. It's it's interesting looking at um, looking at the talks between Mark Harper and Mick Lynch and the mood music just just improving slightly, but we're still uh, some some way from a deal. I think both sides uh, would say. Now let's move on to another political story. Uh, we're not going to talk any more than we have to about the Chester by election. That unsurprising result. But what what it might portend, uh, Mel, if you're a Tory MP, you're looking at the Tories being absolutely walloped in a seat they held until 2015. Uh, you look at the polls, which have now been confirmed to be correct uh, by that result. Uh, if you were a Tory MP right now, Mel, would you think, well, hang on, there's no absolutely no chance I'm going to put myself through either a humiliating loss or uh, 10 years or more of opposition? If if I was if I was the age I am, I'd just say, uh, well, you know, I've got, you know, I'll just do it because I've got, I've got no other choices. If I was thirty years younger, I would say, I'm Ofsky, I'm Ofsky. I, I heard Matthew Paris talking about this the other day, um, and how you know there is no point in hanging around uh, when you see the writing on the wall, and there is this kind of tipping point. Um, good people leave, 
um, because you know there's there's that whiff in the air, that loss of confidence. They, you, you see opportunity and and a life to be spent elsewhere doing more fulfilling things, um, not not being in a, a dull in a dull place on the back benches or I mean better to leave on a high when you were the sitting MP than to go through it. What what could could be a defeat and what is increasingly looking like a defeat. So why not go now and um, go and find something else to good to do? And James, what is Boris Johnson playing at? Because we learned yesterday he's told his local party that he's going to stand again, but it won't have escaped the notice of, of, of him or his local party or indeed the Labour Party that with the polls as they are, his uh, 7,000 or so majority in Uxbridge and South Ryslip is probably going to be swallowed up uh, by, uh, by a Labour landslide. So that, it doesn't seem very Boris Johnson to announce your intention to run an election you don't think you're going to win. So I, I think two things. First of all, I think the boundary changes he will actually be a Tory who will be helped quite a bit by then. Uh, and that will make his, his seat um, a little bit easier for him to defend. And secondly, I think he's keeping his options open. You know, if he, if he announced he was not going to stand again, then, 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 you know, that would be, his political obituary would be written. Um, I, what, but while I was by suggesting he's going to stick about, you know, he, he, we're talking about him. Uh, and people begin to kind of wonder what he's going to do next. And, you know, Boris Johnson is one of those politicians who's always thrived off people talking about what he's going to do next. Yeah, <laughs> in, indeed, indeed. And that's, I, I, that's exactly what we're I, doing now. Go on, Mel. I love the cynical suggestion that he'll just go and find a, a secure Tory seat somewhere else. I just, yeah, it made me laugh. He wouldn't be the, he wouldn't be the first. They call it the chicken run. We're also going to bring in Ellie Mollison, who's a student from Nottingham, who runs the Her Game 2 campaign at... Because the Qatar World Cup is mired in controversy, as we know, but could one of the positives uh, and something that was pitched as a bit of an own goal for the Qatari government and the organisers earlier uh, in the week uh, be a positive to come out of the competition? Alcohol-free stadiums. Um, people have said that the atmosphere at England Games have been much improved, particularly for women and people who traditionally find the macho atmosphere on the terrace, uh, terraces rather intimidating, has been much improved thanks to sobriety in the stands. Uh, Ellie Mollison joins me live now from Qatar. Morning, Ellie. Good morning. Um, good afternoon. Here, good yeah. afternoon in Qatar, of course, of course. Um, how noticeable has the difference been uh, in the stadiums then without uh, without booze? It has been a lot more subdued and that has its pros and its cons. And the pros are I have not witnessed any hostility at all, as in zero, nothing, nothing at all. But then it obviously does mean the atmosphere is obviously not quite as we're used to in Britain with the singing and everything, it is a lot, it probably is a lot safer compared to maybe going to an away game in England. You don't get any angry away fans screaming at you. It is significantly more subdued. Well, you know, I, I regularly um, attend uh, football games. I'm a Liverpool fan, a um, season ticket holder, so I'm, I'm, I'm an Anfield fairly regularly. I also, you know, go to non-league games um, as well. And, you know, you see my fair share of... Uh, of boozy blokes on the terraces, um, and I, you know, I don't know what it's like as a, to experience that as a, as a woman. I remember what it was like as a kid, and it wasn't particularly, uh, particularly fun. Um, do you think um, that alcohol, as a rule, makes uh, stadia uh, more intimidating places for women? Um, I would say no. I think to put it on alcohol in the the fact that it's intimidating would be taking away from the main issue itself. Mm. Um, I think we have a culture here in England where we don't perhaps 
respect our women as we should who come to football. I'm very lucky in that obviously I'm a Forest season ticket holder and I know everyone who I sit with. I know and they all know me and they're all fantastic. But it's when you go to those away games, you speak to other English fans. It can be quite intimidating. Sometimes people can say some nasty things or make you not feel welcome. I think not having alcohol in a stadium has made it more subdued, but it would be an absolute lie to say that people were sober still at this World Cup because that's not the case. And and, and just briefly, Ellie, before I head back to our columnists, uh, Mel and James, do you think... uh, it's a good idea for the Premier League then. No alcohol. Uh, obviously, we can't drink at our seats, unlike other sports, but um, an alcohol ban in stadia in Britain, yes or no? I'm going to say no. Mm. I think I think um, it should be dealt more. Sexism in stadiums needs to be dealt with at the root of the cause rather than putting it on just perhaps being drunk. That takes away from it Takes the away from the... Uh, and the personal responsibility of people in, in question, you know. Um, similar with all, uh, you know, the boorish forms of abuse you hear from uh, a minority, a vocal minority, on the terraces in Premier League stadia and, and lower down the leagues. Um, James and Mel, just before I let you go, I wonder what you, what you made of that uh, discussion. I don't know how much of the World Cup you've been watching, but uh, Mel, no booze in football stadiums. Good or bad idea? Uh, well, it, 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 in an ideal world, it would it would be good to stop people being bullied. I mm. think it's equally it's equally horrid for for men and women. Uh, you know, I don't think you can just say it's women that suffer. I think I think uh, men get 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 terribly bullied by drunken fans too, because the problem is that, in, and the problem is also outside the stadia, um, and, and and it spills over. So it's uh, it's not nice for anybody. I'm I'm. I'm a I'm a bit of a banner when it comes to alcohol, actually. And and James, you know, this is the, this has been on the uh, on the government's agenda. The independent review of football uh, by Tracy Crouch, the former minister, suggested that they could lift the ban on selling alcohol at some levels. Uh, just a just a quick answer: yes or no to that idea. Uh, yes, I, I think that you know people should behave responsibly, but you know I, I'm I'm generally instinctively against banning things. That was James Forsyth and Melanie Reid with today's columnists. You can read them every week in The Times, of course. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox or pick up a copy of the paper. But next, it's time for our big thing on how to behave if you're an ex-Prime Minister. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast, and now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I may have been wrong. That's your call. But believe one thing, if nothing else. I did what I thought was right for our country. We're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years. Well, all political careers end in failure, but once a Prime Minister's career dies, there's an afterlife to think about. There's nothing as ex, they say in Westminster, as an ex-Prime Minister. Boris Johnson has confirmed he plans to stand again in his seat at the next general election rather than fully immerse himself in the public speaking circuit. He's in Singapore today, remember, speaking at the International Blockchain Symposium. But you might wonder what unfinished business he has in Parliament too. Last week, both he and Liz Truss joined the Backbench Rebellion over wind farms. Next week, Gordon Brown will present the case for the abolition of the House of Lords. So there's plenty of work for an ex-Prime Minister to do. Oh, and we can't forget that Tony Blair was on the airwaves this week too, uh, proposing Britain renegotiate the Brexit deal. So there's an unprecedented number of living former Prime Ministers uh, doing the rounds, some of them in Parliament, some of them pursuing careers in public life. Before we look in depth at what the recent departures from the office might do, I'm joined by Steve Richard, author of The Prime Ministers, to talk about the historical precedents and what examples there are uh, for this generation of former leaders to follow. Morning, Steve. Morning. Um, So let's look back at... Uh, you know, recent examples from recent history, shall we, Steve? Um, I think, broadly speaking, until recently, there were maybe there were maybe two options. You could uh, retire gracefully uh, and be uh, and be discreet. Occasionally, make a, a pointed intervention. I'm thinking of Macmillan uh, in his dotage, criticising Thatcher for selling off the family silver, but otherwise uh, maintaining a, an air of. Uh, of statesmanlike discretion, or the other example people always offer is is Ted Heath, who stewed on the back benches and made no secret of the fa- fa- fact he thought Margaret Thatcher uh, was disgracing herself and the Conservative Party. Uh, is is that broadly broadly an accurate assessment? I think that covers the range. Of course, Macmillan, when he retired, did so through illness. He thought he was seriously ill. It turned out he had many years left. Um, uh, but he was uh, discreet, and uh, Heath represents the other end of the spectrum. 
uh, the difference now, of course, is, as you suggested in your introduction, there are so many of these people and uh, former prime ministers. And I think they are really difficult for current leaders to manage. Um, they don't quite know what to do with them. And the former prime ministers don't quite know what to do either, but they're young enough to want to do quite a lot. Whereas Macmillan, even when he was prime minister, was happy reading a Jane Austen novel in the afternoon. Um, so I think there is a big difference with this generation of former prime ministers. Uh, Heath did stay on in the Commons and cause all kinds of trouble for Thatcher. Um, but now there are tons of them. Can't move former prime ministers. And, and, and the key difference you pointed out in the course of your answer there, Steve, is is age. You have people leaving office in their in their 50s and their 60s. Life expectancy uh, is longer. Um, and even in the case of Liz Trust, people leaving office in, in their 40s. That's a huge difference. And it, it means people have a, a lot of time to fill, having already attained the office that uh, they've spent their, their entire adult lives striving for. And then all of a sudden they have a... a, a big public profile they have the uh the in some cases at least the credibility and international standing you uh, gain ex officio from from being prime minister and they have an awful lot of time to to fill yeah exactly that's the big difference and i think it is underexplored really this issue of age and being a prime minister and then a former prime minister getting the office at a young age leaving at a relatively young age and what that does to our politics and leadership so you know to take the current situation uh, poor old sunak has got johnson in the house of commons breathing down his neck you've mentioned liz truss um, there's Theresa May sitting there often with a sort of look of um, slight uh, mischief. She certainly did it with, with Johnson anyway. Um, and on Starmer's side, you've got Blair, Brown, Miliband well, Miller wasn't a prime minister, of course, he was an ex-leader. Um, and uh, they, they're all still relatively young. And uh, as you said in the introduction, they all want to do things still. And uh, it, it, it's underexplored for two reasons. One, there is no clear role for a former prime minister. So they're all busking it in different ways. Um, and second, for current leaders, I think it's another layer of instability, one of many, many lay layers which make current leaders feel insecure and in some ways are insecure. Uh, yeah, that that is, and it's very interesting. It's very it's very interesting, um, and, and particularly something that often happens when a prime minister replaces another, particularly from the same party in office, is that there's been a substantial political uh, disagreement or judgment has been cast uh, by a party that the prime minister departing disagrees with. A, a key example of this is is Margaret Thatcher, who obviously ended up in the uh, in the in the Lords. And let's take a listen to her maiden speech in the upper chamber, which she uh, in, in which she admitted she'd been put in a delicate position. Because I calculate that I was responsible as Prime Minister for proposing the elevation to this House of some 214 <laughs> of its present members. <laughs> that must surely be considerably more than most of my predecessors. And my father did not know Lloyd George. <laughs> as Prime Minister, I made a point of following your Lordship's debates and the reports of your select committees and found them invaluable for the wealth of experience and worldliness which they contained. I have to confess that your voting record occasionally gave rise to other and more violent emotions. 
and Mrs. Thatcher is an example. Um, not John Major, who who was turfed out of office by the electorate. Tony Blair, um, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss. These are all people who have legacies to contest and and have political unfinished business, aren't they? So that also adds a degree of complexity to the role of a former prime minister. If you think you have a uh, political record that's being maligned or trashed, particularly by your own party, um, there's a there's an imperative either for posterity or for your own lingering political ambitions to uh, to be outspoken and and defend your legacy, isn't there, Steve? Yeah, and each one is fascinating. So the dance between uh, Thatcher when she left office and Major, who was her chosen successor, um, was extraordinary and I think caused Major considerable uh, torment and misery. She campaigned against the Maastricht Treaty. She briefed that she was disappointed with Major on many occasions and, and made his life really uh, difficult. And as you say, that was partly because she felt her legacy was being uh, undermined by what he was uh, doing. And you now have Boris Johnson briefing. He's going to keep a clear eye out for any shift on Brexit. He wants his levelling up agenda, ill-defined under him, incidentally, uh, to be pursued by uh, Sunak. And um, uh, it is really interesting. And on the Labour side, it is absolutely fascinating because here you've got a new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, who's only been an MP since 2015, who um, in his kind of early phase went through, I think, a sort of loss of confidence and decided to turn to the winners. And they were more than happy, as he saw them, um, more than happy to oblige. So you've got Blair and Brown advising Keir Starmer, putting their people into his office um, in, in a way that's never happened before to a leader of the opposition. It's the equivalent of Tony Blair in 1994 when he became Labour leader saying, right, you know, uh, Aaron Wilson one will turn to his people. I'll get Joe Haynes in to be my... You know, it, it, it is really interesting, the continuing influence of... Um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So I, I find these dances between former prime ministers and current leaders and current prime ministers really interesting. And Well, it certainly is. And, and we'll talk more about recent examples from people who were in the room with those prime ministers in just a moment. But I just wanted to bring uh, listeners, and, and indeed you, Steve Richards, uh, a bit of breaking political news. Uh, it's, it's not entirely unrelated to the topic we're discussion, discussing, uh, people leaving office earlier than ever before and uh, deciding uh, how to uh, best protect their legacies and and spend uh, their many decades remaining in public life. Sajid Javid, uh, twice a candidate for the Conservative leadership and uh, a mainstay of the cabinets of the past 10 years, has just in the past few moments confirmed he won't be standing at the next general election, joins a number of Conservative MPs in making that decision. Uh, he says on Twitter, after much reflection, I've decided that I will not be standing again at the next general election, uh, serving as the member of Parliament for Bromsgrove remains an incredible privilege and I will continue to support the government and the causes I believe in. Sajid Javid there, uh, most recently Health Secretary. Uh, Steve, just before I bring in Jonathan Haslam and Joe Tanner to discuss former Prime Ministers, um, your reaction to that and what it tells us about uh, the Conservatives' uh, fortunes at the next election in particular and our political culture in general? Uh, a lot. Um, first, it's really interesting that he's decided to go. I think in each case of these uh, people leaving politics, it's a combination of the personal and a wider pattern. In his case, he's clearly concluded that um, he's not going to be part of Sunak's 
plans uh, in uh, government. He made a mess of the leadership contest, didn't he? Switch to Liz Truss at some point. Um, anyway, he did. Whatever. Yeah, and he's clearly decided he's he, he he's he's blown it, and will therefore go. But of course, when you have this announcement, one after another. Um, it is both a reflection of a tired governing party who fear they might be heading for defeat and people not wanting to spend a long time in opposition. Um, but it also fuels that perception because um, a, a party to feel vibrant and part of the future does not want people announcing on near daily basis that they're leaving uh, politics. Um, and uh, there's clearly going to be uh, more of this in, in the coming months. It's nowhere near as damaging as when MPs announce they're defecting to another party, which happened in the mid-1990s from Tory to Labour. But it's the next thing down that league table mm. of symbolising a, a party that is running out of kind of energy and ideas and not really possessing the future which is the art of politics, really. You've got to be seen to be owning the future, and this clearly points in a different direction. Well, Steve Richards, author of The Prime Ministers, thanks very much for joining us to talk us through uh, just that resignation of Sajid Javid, or rather Sajid Javid not standing again next election, and, of course, how to be an ex-Prime Minister. And we're going to hear from two people who have advised some of the severed ex-Prime Ministers who are still haunting British politics. Jonathan Haslam was Director of Communications for John Major, Good morning, Jonathan. Yeah, hello, Patrick. And Joe Tanner was an advisor to Boris Johnson while he was Mayor of London. Morning, Joe. Morning. Joe, let's come to you first, given that Boris Johnson's political ambitions have uh, have been in the news over the past 24 hours. Um, he's decided to stand again, or is at least saying he's going to stand again in Uxbridge and South Ryslip. Were you, uh, were you surprised by that? Or is Boris, as an ex-Prime Minister... Um, well, is the point of Boris as next Prime Minister that he doesn't want to be ex for very much longer and still harbours that ambition to, to get back into office like Churchill did? Oh, I think I think anyone that's surprised by anything <laughs> Boris does these days is, is a fool, aren't they, Patrick, let's face it. So I, I think, it, you know, that there's always that phrase when you talk about Boris that, you know, he, he himself used about, you know, waiting for the, the, the ball to to leave the scrum, you know, to come loose from the scrum. And I think there is a, there is definitely, uh, there's definitely a sort of bubbling sense that, you know, perhaps there is still a time for Boris. I've heard from some MPs that say that the local elections next year are going to be a massive test uh, for Rishi Sunak and that there is always that temptation for MPs to say, hang on, we're really, really going to have a, a terrible general election following some really poor uh, local elections if that's the way they go uh, later in 23. And if that is the case, you can see a, you can see a route back for Boris Johnson, there's no question. But, you know, this artificial deadline that the, that the Conservative Party have set um, about declaring your intentions is incredibly difficult because any MP can say they're going to stand again. And then for whatever reason, there can be any form of of sort of personal circumstance, you know, lucrative career opportunity that will mean that then you can change your mind. So I think we have to take that there are definitely people that are saying clearly they're giving up political careers. And to be honest, loads have told me for probably about a year or so that they've been wondering whether they want to do this anymore, um, given the the low political standing, that low standing, sorry, for the public that politicians have. 
but I think I think we should also beware that just because people say they are going to stand, mm. it's much harder to say you're not going to stand and then decide to stand. It's a lot easier to say I'm going to carry on and actually then decide not to. Yeah, and, and, and Boris Johnson is a man who, you know, in his final speech as Prime Minister on the steps of Number 10, didn't do the the usual I'm so grateful to have said. Well, he did, he did that, but he made very clear that his ambitions weren't over. He's already tried to stand in another leadership election. So he's probably not going to do the uh, the typical ex-Prime Minister thing of retiring gracefully, uh, supporting the government from the backbenches. You know, he's already joined the rebellion on onshore wind farms this week, as has uh, Liz Truss. So I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from him rather than the rare interventions uh, people in his position tend to make, aren't we, Joe? And I think the other thing we have to remember is that I'm not convinced a lot of the MPs really wanted him to go. Mm. You know, in reality, although there was that huge raft of resignations, it was done with an extremely heavy heart by many of them who were very upset. They felt very conflicted. They hadn't, there are many MPs that have not given up on Boris Johnson. And that's incredibly difficult as a leader to then know that there is a, you know, there there are a group of people that still want you to carry. You know, you're like a footballer who says, you know, I'm going to quit my career, and and you know, his fans still want them to carry on. And it's it's quite tempting, and I think that's where you're left in this sort of very difficult position about what next. You know, you want to earn money, you want to be relevant, you want you you haven't kind of given up your ambition your restlessness, your hunger for stuff. Um, you know, and you saw that with Tony Blair in terms of what, you know, Tony Blair has, has been a, a major uh, force in lots of different areas. Look at the stuff he did in COVID, uh, during COVID. He was kind of several steps ahead of the government many mm. times. So I think there is a, the circumstances by which people leave and how angry or vexed they are against their colleagues but also how many other colleagues are still kind of pushing behind the scenes it's different when you've just got a small group that are kind of old but we still love you but actually if there's still a group that think he's in the actual winning machine you can see the temptation to hang around. Uh, Jonathan Haslam, uh, let's bring you in because in some respects, John Major is the opposite of what Joe Tanner was just describing about Boris Johnson. Uh, he wasn't turfed out by his own party. He was turfed out by the electorate in 1997 uh, and has since become the sort of archetypal elder statesman. Obviously, he was very uh, outspoken on, on Brexit and partygate in the state of the Conservative Party. Um, but... Talk us through talk us through his thought processes. How do you think John Major envisions the role of a former uh, prime minister? Because obviously there was no question of him uh, getting back into office. He resigned as Tory leader and was replaced by William Hague, and then left Parliament in two thousand and one. But what, what, what? How do you think he sees his role? Well, rather differently to the current generation, I'm sure. And um, just to go back to a point you were making earlier, Patrick, uh, I'm not sure that Boris Johnson can do anything gracefully, and. Um, Picking up what uh, Joe was just talking about, it's all well and good to talk about Boris Johnson holding on and saying he's going to stand again. Uh, I think there's an electorate that might have different points of view about that based on the polling that we're seeing. So he could find himself turfed out uh, if we have an election fairly soon or even in two years if things don't turn around for the Conservative Party. So that's to be taken into account. And from Johnson's point of view, he has to stay there and say that he is going to stand again because that gives him relevance. It gives him relevance for his speaking career and for his writing career in the immediate future while he tries to pile the money in the bank. So far as Sir John was concerned, it was a different time. And I think if you look at uh, that healing nature of time and people looking at 
a record uh, with the benefit of hindsight and experience that's been gained, then you'll see that his interventions have been very, very carefully focused. So if it's about the Northern Ireland peace process, he will make a point, uh, as did he and Tony Blair. Uh, if it's about trying to prorogate Parliament, uh, he will make a point. And he is a man of firm principle. So he chooses his moments, recognising that there is always a danger of people, even in the Conservative Party, saying, well, gosh, well, he's an old Remainer. He's going to say that anyway. Pay no attention. So focus is really very, very important. And for the, for the current lot, they should also reflect on things that both Tony Blair and John Major have done, which is not just to recognise that they have a good 20 or 30 very productive years in front of them, but also that they can do a great deal of good, which isn't always lauded. So, for example, uh, from uh, Tony Blair's side, he has his foundation, which has charitable functions. Gordon Brown with the Gordon and Sarah Brown Foundation do the same thing. And with John Major, he's got a whole raft of uh, philanthropic and charitable works that he does. He chaired the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Award and services so that more than £100 million was devoted to health, education and cultural aspects of, of the Commonwealth. He's chaired the Ditchley Foundation and Chatham House, amongst many other things. So you do look for a hinterland where somebody who's had uh, really in-depth experience, which the current clutch do not have, mm. of being in international fora, of making contacts, and knowing that they can do good without actually getting the headlines. But if they want to seek the headlines, you've got to focus. Focus. That's a word that uh, some people might not associate with our current crop of ex-Prime Ministers inside or outside of Parliament. Uh, but there we go. Um, thanks very much to Jonathan Haslam, former Director of Communications for John Major, Joe Tanner, former advisor to Boris Johnson and Mayor of London, and Steve Richards, author of The Prime Ministers. Coming up, we'll have more discussion on how to be an ex-Prime Minister, specifically how to make a splash in the Commons once you've left office and are languishing on the backbenches. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Patrick Maguire on Times Radio. And today we're asking, how exactly should an ex-Prime Minister behave inside or outside of Parliament? Now, for the first time in a very long time, there are three former Prime Ministers currently sitting in the Commons. One man who watches them all closely, when they turn up, that is, is Times sketch writer Quentin Letts. Good morning, Quentin. Good morning, Patrick. Quentin, you've uh, you've been looking down at politicians from the gallery for for, for some years. Uh, you'll have seen, uh, you know, ex prime ministers past John Major, uh, Gordon Brown, uh, who never turned up really after he left office. Not uh, very often, no. no uh, it, he, he didn't turn up, uh, and um, Cameron turned up once and then quit. It, um, so it's it's a difficult thing for a prime minister to go, a former prime minister to go back into the Commons. It's um, you know, it, it feels like playing playing in Division 2 after you've been in the Premiership, I guess. Is there always a bit of a free song when a former PM gets their feet in the Commons? Obviously, I think we, we all watch Theresa May from the gallery and know she's going to uh, you know, either wield the stiletto or say something washpish. You know, when Boris turns up these days, um, it's always a bit of a, bit exciting. And, and, and Liz Truss, uh, as well, there's a sort of bathos to her appearances in the Commons. Um, is, it always a, is it always the main event when an ex-Prime Minister is, is about to get on their hind legs? Uh, not necessarily. It depends how dry they keep their powder. Uh, Mrs. May, uh, Lady May, as we should call her, because her 
husband is a, is a knight of the realm. Um, she is in danger of overdoing it, but hasn't quite overdone it yet. And uh, there is still interest in the gallery uh, when she rises, but there isn't electricity. Mind you, there never really was with Theresa, because she wasn't uh, and is not um, uh, a scintillating parliamentary performer. When Boris Johnson stands, there's still a novelty of it, I guess. And uh, with Liz Truss, I haven't heard her say anything in the Commons. Um, haven't actually seen her in the Commons since she um, she departed number 10. No, but it does depend on how how much they speak. So, for instance, with uh, Edward Heath, mm. he completely overdid it and behaved, became this, his his Commons appearances just became uh, predictably rather uh, uh, grumpy. Um, and it also depends, Patrick, on where they sit. Uh, Heath always sat just below the gangway, uh, which is the position that Churchill took after he left the premiership and stayed in the Commons. Um, uh, Lady May sits two benches behind the government front bench, and uh, it's um, it's become her place. It, it helps if they go in regularly enough to establish a perch as their own. And Boris Johnson has taken to sitting just across the gangway from her in roughly the um, the position that Geoffrey Howard, from which Geoffrey Howe attacked uh, Mrs. Thatcher. So it's sort of um, it's a good sniper shot at the uh, at the Prime Minister's shoulders, you could say, from there. But it, if you can establish your a regular perch, then people know to look there, and they can um, it, it becomes part of your aura. And it also forces the Prime Minister. If you think about the geography of the chamber, uh, it's a bit of a power play because the Prime Minister then has to crane their neck and and look deferentially up at their uh, their predecessor. Um, it, it's interesting, though, isn't it? You talk about Liz Truss not having not having spoke. I've seen her in the terrace cafeteria in the Commons on on jerk chicken Wednesdays, but other than that, I've I've not seen her uh, in the chamber. Um, what do you expect her first intervention might be? I mean, this is just guesswork. But you know, is she going to get up and ask an earnest question about a Suffolk ho- Suffolk hos- hospital, or uh, you know, critique Rishi Sunak's economic policy? I suppose her problem is she she lacks almost totally the the gravitas that former prime ministers are assume from uh, occupying the office, doesn't she, having only occupied it for, you know, five minutes? I suppose the answer to that question, it depends on what her uh, long-term idea of uh, of her life is. If she's going to stay in the House of Commons, then she might well ask something local uh, just as as a, to ease herself back into the water. But I would imagine that she would develop, if she's going to stay in the Commons, and she'd try to develop some sort of area of um, expertise, so maybe trade would be her thing, or, or foreign affairs. The foreign affairs uh, thing is normally what former prime ministers would talk about. And so, for instance, with Boris Johnson, I suspect that Ukraine will be something very dear to his heart. A former prime minister has got three aims, really. One, how to earn money, how to fill the time, but also how to protect the legacy. Well, Liz Truss, there isn't really any legacy, but uh, Boris Johnson has got um, Ukraine and Brexit and also COVID as, as those are the big three legacy areas from him. And also, I suspect when we get the, the COVID inquiry reporting, then Johnson will become uh, a, a voice that we want to hear from um, uh, as to what he thinks about the inquiry's findings. Um, talking about Prime Ministers, clear, uh, Prime Ministers and Ministers clearing off, Quentin, just briefly, are you going to miss Sajid Javid? Uh, not much. He was not, not really, he never really worked in the House of Commons, a very uh, underpowered voice. Uh, it wasn't an orator. And um, actually, if you look at his ministerial record, it's sort of um, uh, dribbling ineptitude, a lot of it. So I don't think he's going to leave much of an impression on the cushion, I'm afraid. Well, tell us what you really think, Quentin. Quentin Letts, Times sketch writer. Thanks very much for joining us. 
That's all we've got time for on today's Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Don't forget, Matt's away for the rest of next week, so I'll be in his place instead. Make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from.